Why do people go off into the wilderness? Why do they choose to do that? Why do people plan and pack and then head off into the wild knowing that what awaits them is probably hardship and adversity? Why would you do that? Just for fun, I follow a a number of YouTube accounts where people do this, modern-day adventurers who who go out and they camp in extreme environments, extreme cold, uh, you know, in you know, minus 37 degrees, they're out there camping or crossing desert landscapes in extreme heat. Sometimes they're on foot or in snowshoes or on boats or in campers. Sometimes they have tents, sometimes they don't have tents, and all with varying degrees of resources that they bring with them to survive. Now, the reason I follow these accounts is because, frankly, I couldn't do it. So I'm amazed by it. But more importantly, I'm fascinated by the purpose behind it. Again, why would somebody do that? Some of these folks obviously want to get out into the great outdoors. They want to enjoy nature. We would say they want to enjoy what God has made. But for most of them, and this is what I find, it's to test themselves. It's to test their limits. What are they able to endure? And in the process of that, what might they learn about themselves? as they face hardship, as they are in the midst of this adversity that they know is coming. And I can see the usefulness in this. First of all, I see the usefulness in just getting away from all the the noise and distractions that we live in in this modern world to actually unplug from our phones and our computers, to lay aside comfort and ease. All of that is good and embracing solitude as well. So I think there's some value in this. Now, you may or may not know this, but this has application to scripture. The Bible tells us that the wilderness itself actually plays a very important role in the story of God's people. The Hebrew word is midbar. It's the the most common word that's used for the wilderness in the Old Testament. Listen, it's found 271 times in the Hebrew scriptures. In the New Testament, the various forms of the Greek term eramos are found in another 48 times. So that is a huge number of references to this place we call the wilderness. In fact, the wilderness is so prominent in the Bible that some biblical scholars have posited the idea that the wilderness actually plays a character, is close to playing an actual character in the story of God's people. And if you've been to the land of Israel, you know what this looks like and what it feels like, whether you're in the blistering heat of the Negev desert or in the winding canyons of the wilderness of Zin or you're in the desert oasis of Engedi, or you're in the mountainous caves above Qumran, you know what I'm talking about, and you can almost feel those places in your soul. They're very, very important. Many of the great men of the faith in the Bible spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and they learned a lot of important lessons out there. God was their teacher who taught them all kinds of things through their experiences. Moses is probably the most obvious example. He spent two-thirds of his life in the wilderness, didn't he? First in Midian, and then leading God's people out of Egypt and wandering up towards the promised land. John the Baptist spent most of his life in his ministry far from society, far from the cities, and out in the wilderness of Judea. And of course, Jesus himself intentionally heads out into the wilderness after his baptism, being challenged by the elements and by hunger and thirst and by the devil for 40 days. So there's a great tradition of this, and in Hebrews 11, we get even more names. It's going to come up on the screen. Even more names, Gideon, Barak, 
Samson, Jephthah. There's David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Look at that list of things that they've done. Men of whom the world was not worthy. That's a beautiful statement. Doing what? Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All those things in the wilderness. There's something about the wilderness that just builds character in men and women of God. Teaches them lessons. It's a place where God can purify us and refine us. The wilderness is one of the tools that I think God uses to wean us off the material things of this world and to refocus on our hearts on what really, 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 really matters. And we're going to see him do that with David in today's text. So grab your Bible. Psalm 63. Now, this psalm picks up where we were last Sunday. So if you were here last Sunday, you have a great advantage. We were in Psalm 55 last week. And the backdrop is the same. The backdrop is Absalom's rebellion against David, his father and king. Now, the focus of Psalm 55 last week was betrayal, remember? What was the name of the guy that betrayed David? Ahithophel, right? Boy, I think I got through it last week. I don't know how many times I said it, but I think I got it each time. I was worried. Ahithophel. So the betrayal was last week. The emphasis of this psalm now is David's mindset and the focus of his heart as he is out in the wilderness waiting, waiting on Absalom's army to arrive and anticipating this battle that is going to commence. So let's look at the superscription at the top of the psalm, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness, the Midbar Yehuda, the wilderness of Judah. So let's set the scene again. In Hebron, Absalom had stood up. That was the place where in ancient Israel they crowned kings. He stood up in Hebron and declared himself to be king, his intention to overthrow his father. And he raised an army there, an army of followers. And then he brought David's trusted advisor over to his side. And then he and his whole crew marched on Jerusalem where he took possession of his father's palace. And as we saw last week, upon the advice of this wicked man, Ahithophel, he slept with David's concubines on the rooftop of the palace, in the sight of all Israel, intentionally. Can you imagine? And the irony is thick, right? On the rooftop of the palace is where he did this. So David, of course, had already fled the city by this time. With his family, with his loyal followers, they had crossed the Kidron Valley. They'd gone, they traveled east up and over the Mount of Olives, out towards the Jordan River in the general direction of Jericho. And you guys... I have a map. It has been so long since I've had a map. I've been dying, but we have a map, okay? Because it's important to understand some of the places that you see in this story. The blue dot is always Jerusalem, good. You have, I, I have highlighted Bethlehem in, in the green dot there just because that's the, the hometown of David. This is where he had spent time in both the hill country and in the, in the wilderness of Judea. The pink dot is Hebron. That's where uh, Absalom came from in marching up to Jerusalem. The purple dots in Gedi. We know that, that uh, David spent time hiding from Saul in the caves of Engedi. And I know some of you have been there. It's an amazing place. The red dot is Jericho. So that is the direction. You see the arrow. That's the direction that David and his followers are now following, headed towards 
Jericho and towards the Jordan River. We'll come back to that in just a bit. If you've been to Israel, you have experienced that road, traveling east out of Jerusalem, away from the hill country, and you head into a completely different landscape, don't you? You go down this grade in elevation down to the Dead Sea, and it almost looks like you've arrived on Mars. It's the wilderness. And if you've ever gotten out, out of the actual air-conditioned bus and walked in the dirt and the sand, you know how desolate it feels. It's definitely foreboding. I'll just give you a picture. This is this En Gedi, and that's, that's sort of the sight you get when you go to Israel, places like this. It's dry, it's desolate, and yes, you can find water there, but you have to know where you're headed. But that's sort of the foreboding nature of the wilderness of Judea. Okay, I'll come back to that later, but back to the map now. Uh, 2 Samuel 17 tells us that David eventually crossed the Jordan River, the blue line you see there, and he ends up in a region known as Gilead. That's that yellow region there. That's where he is going to make camp and wait for Absalom's army to arrive. It's there in that barren part of the world, fleeing for his life. You cannot, you cannot overestimate the pain of fleeing from your own son, your own flesh and blood who desires to kill you. A disgraced king in exile, now sitting in this barren land, this is where he writes Psalm 63. And by the way, Psalm 63 has a long and interesting history in the worship of the church. Some of you know who John Chrysostom is, the great fourth century preacher from, from the city of Constantinople. He says in his writings that it was decreed and ordained by the early church fathers that not one day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. Amazing. And that in his city at that time, he says it was to be sung every Sunday morning as the early morning hymn of the day. In fact, he went on to say that the spirit and soul of the entire book of Psalms is contracted in Psalm 63. So let's read it. It must be powerful, right? Because that's pretty high praise. Here's what it says. Verse one, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Whenever I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break these 11 verses down into four sections. And in each section, we're going to find David interacting with the Lord in a different and important way. And the first one is obvious. The first one is this, that David in the wilderness is thirsting after God. Now, as you read verse one, it sets the tone for the entire psalm. There's no question about that. But don't allow yourself, as you read verse one, don't let your mind forget where David is. 
physically, spiritually, and emotionally. He's been driven outside the boundaries of Israel. He has been driven out of his own city, the city of David. He has been driven away from where the tabernacle is and where the Ark of the Covenant sits. Every blessing, it appears, every blessing that David had enjoyed has now been taken from him. And to make things worse, he's now staring death in the face, waiting for his son's army to come out to him. And he's sitting in that type of a landscape. I mean, could it get any lower than this moment? And yet he writes, Elohim Eleata. Oh God, you are my God. That's how he starts. It's personal to him. You are my God, he says. You are the living God of Israel who is intimately involved in my life. You know me, you care for me, you hear my prayers. I have lost everything, but this one thing I still know, that you are my God. At the end of the day, that's what matters, right? Take everything away from me as long as I know that I am yours and you are mine. And it's interesting, in so many of the Psalms, you hear David repeatedly laying prayer requests before the Lord, pleading for his help. Guys, there are no prayer requests anywhere in this Psalm. At the lowest point of David's life, there are no requests in this Psalm. It's as if David had quite literally just come to the end of himself. There's nothing more to ask for. Now there is only loyalty and trust. That's how desperate he is. Now there is only room for allowing the sovereign will of God to play out. And so this is instructive for us. Far from being bitter or complaining about the circumstances he finds him in, David still affirms in spite of, yes, he's under discipline from the Lord, right, for his sin. He's under discipline. He's forgiven, but still under discipline. He still, his greatest longing is to know the Lord. Even in this situation, he doesn't, he doesn't plead in the psalm for the restoration of his blessings. Lord, give me these things back. I miss Jerusalem. He doesn't ask for his kingdom or his palace to be returned to him. He doesn't cry out to the Lord to restore his reputation. His greatest longing is simply more of God, period. And then he continues in verse one, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns or faints for you in this dry and weary or desolate land where there's no water. So there's a word play here, right? Like a man who is dying of thirst in the desert, David's soul deeply thirsts to abide with God. He's in a dry place, but his soul is also feeling it, right? And he wants to abide with the Lord, to have intimate fellowship with him, both body and soul. He says, my soul thirsts, my flesh yearns. I long for you in my entire being, both body and soul. And once again, it's important to say it. David's not pleading for the things that God can give him. He just wants God. That's it. He wants the living water. So thinking New Testament-wise, he, he, he's... he's soul is thirsty. He needs the living water, the same living water that Jesus will promise to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four. That's what he needs. Now, as New Testament believers, we look at this and that, this scenario doesn't seem so far-fetched to us because we don't have a tabernacle today. We don't have a temple where we go and worship at. We know we can worship and pray and we can sing praises anywhere but remember, for an Israelite in 1000 BC, all of those things were connected to a location. And yet, what do you see David doing? Though he's separated from all the religious trappings of Jerusalem, he knows 
that he can commune with the Lord even out there in the desert and know that God sees him and hears him and will respond to him. It's very New Testament, isn't it? It feels very New Testament. In his commentary on the Psalms, John Calvin makes this insightful observation. Listen, he says, there are some people who are religious on the exterior, but they lack a true knowledge of God. The closer they are to religious ceremonies, the more spiritual they feel and the the more they seem to long after God. But remove them from those ceremonies and their zeal for the Lord vanishes. But that's not David. And hopefully that's not us either, right? That we don't come here on Sundays and, well, while we're here, we feel deeply for God, but Monday through Saturday, that zeal vanishes. That should not be us. So that's the first thing we notice in David, his thirst for God. Here's the second thing, verses two through four. He worships God in the wilderness. He worships God. And again, he worships apart from Jerusalem in the middle of the wilderness. Look at verse two. Look how David begins to recall past times when he was privileged to worship the Lord in the tabernacle, even though now he's in the wilderness. Thus I have seen you, David says, in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. So he's cut off from the sanctuary, right? Out in the wilderness by the treachery of his own son. And in order to keep his spirits high here, he holds on to this powerful memory that he has of worshiping the Lord in his sanctuary. What an important principle. He can picture it in his mind's eye, the beauty of God's sanctuary. And in that desperate moment of testing, this was everything to him. It carried him through this difficult time to have that memory of worship in the tabernacle. And I have to tell you, for us, it is so easy because we live in America to take these worship gatherings that we have for granted. But what, what, what if the day came where this wasn't available to us and we were cast out of this school, cast out of any place to meet? I mean, we, we, we had a little bit of that during COVID, right? And it was really, really difficult. But what if we weren't able to worship together or we weren't allowed to worship together? It could, it could, be, it could be worse than even COVID, right? Will you then remember the privilege that we had in this place together to pray and to study God's word and to sing his praises? Could you hold on to that memory and let it carry you through a time in the wilderness? Will you have a powerful memory of worship as David did? It's an important question because we take it for granted, don't we? And then we come to verse three, and this is such a beautiful statement. Because your loving kindness or your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now, some of you know what the Hebrew word is here, right? for loving kindness. You have to spit with me, chesed, right? It's every Christian should be aware of what this word means. It is the steadfast, faithful, covenant-bound love that God has for his people, a love that never fails. That's what the word means. It's very important. It's God's chesed for his people that secures all of the promises that we have, even in the New Testament, all the promises that you enjoy, that you count on, that you trust in, are secured by God's steadfast love, his loving kindness towards you. And here's the point. For David, that was worth more than his life. And that's a good challenge for us, right? This is why David is able to come to the end of himself out there in Gilead, why he, he doesn't even ask for anything from God, why he can rest and have peace in the wilderness, 
Because even if Absalom's army shows up and he himself is defeated and he is killed, well, what of it? What of it? Would, that, would his death in that battle nullify the loving kindness of God? Absolutely not. In fact, he would be ushered into the more fullness of knowing God. Because for the believer to die is gain, right? And that's the way David sees it. So because of God's great love and great promises, David responds. He says, look, God, as long as I have your steadfast love, I'm good. I'm fine. Everything else is gravy. But that I need. And he goes on to say, therefore, my, my parched lips out here in the wilderness will praise you. Because I have that, that chesed. He goes on in verse four. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will, oh boy, here it is. Lift up my hands in your name. Oh boy, hold on to your chairs. It's interesting to think about Old Testament worship, right? How physical it was. How physical it was. How much the ancient Israelites involved their entire bodies when they expressed themselves before God. And then to contrast that with Modern-day Western Christians, we tend to recoil at the idea of, of any movement whatsoever. It's just, we just, you know, you've heard the term frozen chosen, right? <laughs> Remain still, hands by your side, maybe in your pockets. Might be a stretch, maybe in your pockets, but don't move. Whatever you do, don't move. Some of you uh, may know the name Sam Storms. Uh, theologian and pastor. I'm a big fan of his blog. He has a blog called Enjoying God, and it's, it's really a great blog. What makes Sam really unusual, he is a self-described, get this now, charismatic Calvinist. Yeah, go try to find another one of those. But he makes a really compelling case for why every believer should at least look at the scriptures and consider growing and being more expressive in worship. I think he's right. He, I mean, he's not wrong when he says there is all kinds of biblical precedent for it, for the lifting of hands, for example. It's everywhere in the Bible. You'll see it all over the place. He rightly points to Paul's famous statement in Romans 12, where Paul says that our spiritual service of worship is to present our bodies to the Lord, not just our voices with our hands at our sides, but our bodies as an act of worship. And he goes on to talk about, for him, the raising of his hands expresses a number of things. First of all, his surrender and his yielding to God. God, I am your servant and yours to do with as you please, with open hands. It also expresses his openness to God. Lord, I have nothing to hide. I come to you open-handed. My heart and my life are yours to search and to sanctify. Third, he says, it symbolizes his confession of his dependency on God for all things. God, I entrust my life to you and I rely on your strength alone. So preserve me, sustain me, and deliver me. And finally, he says, it's a declaration that we have this loving father who cares for us. Father, reveal yourself to me. I am yours and you are mine. Draw near to me and give me a sense of your presence. And so he lifts his hands for all of those reasons. Now, here at Oak Hill, I'm never gonna tell you, and the elder team's never gonna tell you how to worship or insist that you worship in one way or another. But I do think it's important that we develop convictions on these things and that we develop those convictions not based on the tradition we were raised in or, or whether we feel comfortable doing it or whether you know, it's a risk in a, in, a, in a conservative Bible teaching church to move in any way, but that we look at the scriptures 
and be convicted of how we should be worshiping in the congregation. Does that make sense? But just remember that David and so many of the other great saints, they express themselves with their entire bodies, even by lifting their hands. Okay, third thing that we see in David after worship is he's satisfied in God. Even in the wilderness, David says he is satisfied in God. Look at verse five. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. That what he means by that is, is, is rich food. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. And again, this is an amazing thing. He's out in the wilderness in the midst of this terrible trial in his life. He's spiritually thirsty. And yet he says, I'm still, I'm satisfied in you, God. I'm content to just have you. In fact, so satisfied that he describes his soul being filled with the best and richest food that he can imagine. Now, what is that for you? He's picturing the filet mignon at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Uh, with the, with the, gar- the fluffy garlic mashed potatoes or the, the lobster mac and cheese, right? Yeah, right? He's, that's how, you, you, have you ever had that good of a meal? Oh, it's satisfying. Oh, it's good. It's a good gift from God, right? That's how David feels in that type of a place. He feels that way. Amazing. Now, you might object, how is it possible? And this is an interesting juxtaposition. I'm fully satisfied in God, yet I'm longing for him. How is that? Well, it's the already not yet scenario that we know that we live in, right? We already have Christ. We already possess in him all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And so we can be satisfied down here on the earth. We can be content in him even as we continually seek more of him. Those two things can coexist, right? In fact, they should coexist because he's sufficient for all of your needs. You can be content in him. You can be satisfied and yet still say, I will never come to the end of seeking to know more about him until the day that we're ushered into his presence and we get all of that fullness. How wonderful will that be? Look at verse six. When I remember you, David says, as I lie on my bed, I, I meditate on you in the night watches. By the way, that connected with me. I was talking to Tanny this morning because some of you know this weird habit I have of staying up all night before, before I preach. In the night watches, that's when the best stuff happens. I'm telling you, that's when God just speaks to your heart when it's quiet, late at night. I'm not telling you you have to do that. I'm just saying. I meditate on you in the night watches for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. Do you ever, do you ever lay awake at night in your bed with stuff just running through your mind? Right? You've got a big day ahead of you. You've got big decisions to make. You've got these different paths. You're, you're stressed over things. And I don't know about you, but man, I can toss and turn and not be able to sleep until what? Until I stop and I pray. Until I stop and release that to the Lord and say, I can't control it, Lord. I can't control it. So you work it out because you're far more able than I am to figure all this out. And I can picture David laying awake on that first night in the wilderness. He's processing all of these events that have happened to him. How tragic it all is, right? But here in verses six and seven, it seems to me that he's released all of it to the Lord, right? In fact, that what he's doing here is really a great roadmap for us. He's remembering. This is the key to him releasing that anxiety and being able to sleep. He's remembering. He's bringing to mind all the times in his past when God was his help when God came to his aid, 
right? And I sort of picture him thinking about, oh, oh yeah, there was that battle with Goliath. Yeah, Lord, you really showed up that day, right? Or he's thinking about all the ways that God helped him to evade Saul in the wilderness. You know, he's thinking about all the battles that he had won against the Philistines because, because God was with him. And so he's remembering these things, right? Maybe he's even thinking about how, hey, I, we just barely slipped out of Jerusalem in time before Absalom came to kill me. And he's remembering, God, you have been my help. And that's what allows him then to sing for joy. Again, it's connected to that faithful love. God has been his help. God's been faithful in his loving kindness. And so he trusts in the Lord, right? And he says in verse eight, my soul clings to you. That word cling is the same Hebrew verb that's used in Genesis 2.24, where it describes how a man is joined to his wife, where they become one flesh. That's how intimate David is speaking here. He wants to, he wants to be that close to God in the same way that a man clings to his new wife and becomes one flesh. And then he confirms in a practical way what he had just said about the Lord being his help. He says, your right hand upholds me. How? What is the right hand of God? That is, that is God's hand of, of skill and power. He says, God, you have upheld me by that. You are my rock. You are my deliverer. You are my refuge. He's worshiping again, isn't he? He's satisfied in God. Finally, last thing, he's trusting God for the future in the wilderness. He's trusting God for the future. Look at verse nine. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They'll be prey for foxes. In a better translation there, the Hebrew, it's not foxes, it's more like jackals, which just sounds like a more villainous creature, right? Foxes are so cute. Jackals are villains. They're jackals. So David's deep, this is so important, you guys. David is having this deep communion with God. He's worshiping the Lord. And that's wonderful, but it doesn't remove the practical situation he still finds himself in. Because Absalom's army is still coming. And there's still a battle that has to be fought. And we have to understand that. That's an important principle. But David trusted God to deal with his enemies. And when I say his enemies, I'm talking about not just David's enemies, but Yahweh's enemies. Because David's enemies were, were God's enemies, right? And so David trusts that he's going to deal with it. Again, it connects back to the steadfast love. Because God's loving kindness is not just about love and not just about care. It's also filled with what? Justice. It's filled with God's justice. So David knew that God would deal with the wicked. Either in this life or the next, God will make all things right. And so he says three things about God's enemies. Number one, they'll be slain in battle and become they become food for scavengers. And how did this battle with Absalom end? 2 Samuel 18 gives us the results. 20,000 of Absalom's men were slaughtered by David's men. And Absalom himself, the ringleader, was killed. And those on Absalom's side who fell that day would not be afforded a proper burial, according to Jewish custom. They, because of their betrayal and wickedness, their bodies would be left exposed to the elements and to animals. This was a disgraceful way for a Jew to die. Second, they would go down to the place of the dead, to Sheol or to Hades, where there they would await God's righteous judgment, his justice. That will happen. And then number three, which you see in verse 11 they would have their lying mouths shut by the Lord. So, so God vindicates his own, right? 
Who's gonna go down in history as a man after God's own heart? Absalom, Ahithophel, or David? God vindicates his own. Their mouths would be stopped. Their legacy, legacies would be destroyed for all eternity. And David is recorded in spite of his sin, because of his repentance, because of his, his passion and zeal for the Lord. His legacy is a man after God's own heart. God dealt with his enemies. Now you might ask, well, how, how does David write with such confidence? Well, clearly the spirit is, is, is carrying him through the writing of this. So the spirit is telling him exactly what's gonna happen. But beyond that, we know that David knew God's word. He knew God's promises. He knew that God is in the business of taking what man intends for evil and producing out of it what is good and what is righteous. And he had seen Yahweh do this over and over again. So as he remembers he knows that God's loving kindness will come through for him. That's how he writes with such confidence. Is it not a beautiful psalm? Yes. See, you can actually speak back to the preacher too. We, we can use our hands and we can speak back to the preacher. It's great. Okay, let's talk about some application. We'll close with this. And guys, there's, look, we could probably do a whole nother sermon just on application from this psalm. But let me share a couple things. First of all, there are many, many ways and many, many reasons why you or I might someday end up in the wilderness of life. We have some members right now who are going through a really tough wilderness time. Sometimes we end up in the wilderness because of our own sin, like David, but sometimes it's just part and parcel of having to live in this fallen world. And bad things sometimes happen. We know that to be true. God's sovereign over it all, but it's sometimes hard to explain. But it's likely that at some point in our lives, we will be in the wilderness. So that's why we look at a psalm like this and we say, okay, what are the principles we pull out of this so that we're prepared for when that day comes, to respond well? Because if we're not prepared, how, are, how do you think we're gonna respond when we go through hard times? So we prepare for it now. So I'll mention just a couple things that we've already seen in David, and then I wanna close with one big final principle. Couple things. First of all, it's this idea of remembering Remembering is so important. Recalling moments in the past when you saw God's faithfulness at work. We should all have these things. And it begins with us being saved, right? When God saved us from ourselves, when he drew us to himself and we embraced the gospel. Because that wasn't a work of ours, right? It was him alone. So that starts there, but there's so many other times. And not just remembering, but David uses the word meditating. You know what the word meditating meant in, in the ancient context? Sheep... Some of you guys know this. Sheep, when they eat things, they regurgitate it, right? They have like four stomachs or something. So they eat it, they regurgitate it, it comes back up, ew, and then they keep chewing on it. That's the pastoral image of meditating. We think about it over and over again. We keep chewing on it. And that's so important to get us through these storms of life. Sometimes we refer to this as planting an Ebenezer, right? We sing that word, and we're like, what's that word, Ebenezer? Scrooge, What? But it was this idea of a monument, building a monument. God, God did something right here in this spot. Let's build a monument, an Ebenezer. And so every time we pass by it, we remember what God has done. So we build those things in our minds. And we say, look, when I'm in the wilderness and I'm in despair, I'm going to remember. I'm going to come back to my Ebenezer. Secondly, we saw David focus on intentional worship. Guys, sometimes... Worship is just a decision of the will. 
even when you don't feel like it. Like, man, I'm at a low point. The blessings have been taken from me. I don't know why I'm confused, but I will make a decision of the will to worship with lips of praise and songs of joy. To just do it. I hate the Nike thing, just do it. But at some point, the decision of the will, you've got to say, I'm going to praise God because he's worthy of it. And remembering plays a role in that as well. We can look back on times we were together like this, where we sang songs. Like David did, he remembered times in the sanctuary. We go back and we say, man, there was, the, there was that Sunday where I was, just over, I was singing songs to God and I was just overwhelmed by his presence, overwhelmed by his goodness. I'm going to remember that. Or I was in the congregation and I saw my friend, my brother, my sister, and I know he or she was going through a hard time, but they were singing their guts out. And that just, that just was so encouraging. I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to intentionally worship. And then third, we saw David being satisfied in God. Something that should be easy for us because we have Christ. We have Christ, right? We are blessed more than David because we live on the other side of the cross. We have, our sins are forgiven and washed away. We're reconciled to God. We're adopted as sons and daughters. We are saved for all eternity. So if we have all of that, guys, if we possess that and we're in the wilderness, what do we really have to fear? That's the type of thing we need to come back to and remember. Those are all things that David did in this low moment. Now, here's the big idea that I want to leave with you. And it shouldn't be a surprise. It connects back to verse one. Go back to verse one. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. So question, are you truly committed to seeking God just for him and not for what he can give you? That's an important question for our soul. Just for him. Not for the blessings you might get from knowing him. Just him. Because this really is the heart of worship, right? Where we thirst for God and we pursue him. Worship is about saying, this is what matters most to me. This is the highest value of my life. And as a result, this is what will fuel my life. And this is what will determine the paths that I take. Because it's the thing that I value the most. And every person on the planet worships something. Your unsaved neighbor worships something right? He has an altar. He doesn't know it, but he has an altar and his altar leads to a particular throne. And it's actually pretty easy to figure out what he worships, just as it's easy for us to do some self-examination and say, well, what do I worship? You just follow the trail. Follow the trail of how you spend your time, what your affections are, where your energy is placed, where you place your money and your allegiance. And at the end of that trail, there will be an altar and a throne. And that's what you worship. Whatever or whoever is on the throne is what you value the most, and that's what you will continue to worship. For David, it's obvious in Psalm 63, what mattered to him most, it wasn't his kingship, which God had given to him. It wasn't his palace, which God had allowed him to build. It wasn't his reputation, which God had handed to him and blessed him as he, as he grew in his leadership as a king. It wasn't those things. It was just God. It was just more of him. And that's where we need to get as Christ followers. Now, none of us does this perfectly, right? Because we're always looking at the altar and the throne in our lives. And we're always just pushing off those idols, right? This should be a constant thing. I got to get that one off too. 
so that God alone is there, so that Christ alone is there. That's gotta be our prayer and our striving to constantly fight that battle. I I read a quote this week from Jonathan Edwards, great Jonathan Edwards, and he lived this out in a really practical way. Let me give you this quote. You might even consider doing this. He actually wrote this down. He said, on January 12, 1723, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God to be for the future in no respect my own, to act as one that had no right to himself in any respect. And I solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and joy, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were, and his law for the constant rule of my obedience, engaging to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. Now that is a clear statement. That is a clear statement. Do you think he lived it out perfectly? Absolutely not. But I have no doubt what he was committed to or where his striving was placed. Now, what's the, what's the most common enemy we face when it comes to, to living this way? Can I tell you that the temptation we face is very subtle and it's so easy to fall into? Here it is. We confuse the gift with the giver. We confuse the gift with the giver. We end up enjoying his gifts so much that we forget about where they came from. And it's very easy in the world we live in, in modern day America. It was harder for David. It was harder for ancient people. Not so much for us. That's why I asked, are you truly committed to seeking God just for him and not the things that he can give to you? Because we fall into that trap. John Piper talks about this in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, not the obvious things, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. The simple pleasures of life that God gives us, they are given to us to enjoy. We can enjoy those with freedom and and with thankfulness. But they're never really safe with us because we are always prone to wander, to drift away from the giver and to worship the gift. To worship our lives, all the blessings of our lives. Piper says it this way, we're prone to sit down at our father's table, enjoy bite after bite of the feast he provides and gradually forget who our host is. And how easy would it be to give lip service to God while our hearts are taken, not really by him, but by all the good things that he's given us. It's possible to love our health and our families and our careers and our hobbies and our homes and our freedoms and to thank God for all of them, but still not thirst for God alone. Think about that. Because we have it so good. Dare I say, because we haven't been out to the wilderness. We have it comfortable. That's why Psalm 63 matters. It's why we have to understand this. David says, I just want the giver. If I get any of that stuff back, that's wonderful. But I just want the giver. He's taken everything from me at this point, but he still remains my God, and that is enough. That's where we need to get to. I'm still fighting this battle, so I'm up here preaching to myself. Okay? Here's a good question to test yourself in this. Which would you prefer? Two choices. Living in a land of milk and honey without God, or living in a barren wilderness filled with God. Or to put it in biblical terms, do you truly believe 
truly believe that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than your life, better than all the gifts that you could have? It's a good question to answer in your soul. Because if you want God more than you want life, then your striving is gonna be more for God and it'll be for using the good gifts that he gives us in a way that's appropriate, in a way that, that magnifies God and doesn't replace him. And that's what the wilderness did for David. It refined him and it purified him. And that's what it does for us. And what we realize when we finally understand this is that if God does give us a wilderness experience, it's actually a grace and a blessing to be refined in that way. In God's kindness, he sends us out there sometimes and he shows us our hearts. Whether we want to see it or not, the deep parts of our hearts. And we're like, God says, look, look, see? See, I want all of you, but you see that idol? Now I can see it, right? Now I can feel it, and now I can deal with it. But without the wilderness, we may never, ever, ever even discover it because of all the good things that we have. And when God brings us back from the wilderness, if we've learned our lesson, then yeah, then we can enjoy those good gifts, and they don't replace him but we need those experiences. Amen? Listen, none of, none of us here really wants to go into the wilderness. Nobody's up here going, I volunteer. Send me into a time of really, real, really, really hard things. But if God does see fit to take you out into the wilderness, here's my advice. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Know that his steadfast love always remains, that even in the wilderness, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? That's his covenant love. He's not going to take you out there to starve you, but he will show you that man does not live on bread alone in the wilderness. And he will teach you to desire his love and his presence more than life itself. And that's something we all need to learn. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Oh God, you are my God. I declare that this morning and I pray that my brothers and sisters will do the same, that we will seek to know you more earnestly, that our souls might thirst for you, our flesh might yearn for you. And if we're in a wilderness time right now, Lord, may that become all the more evident in our lives. God, uh, it is a beautiful thing to see you in the sanctuary, even in this place this morning, to see your power and your glory and to praise you with lips that long to know you more intimately. Father, help us to worship well in the time that we have left this morning. Satisfy us, Lord, by your love, by your loving kindness, by your steadfast love. Help us to remember all the good things that you've done for us. Help us to meditate on those things. And God, above all else, even as we sing now, may our souls cling to you because you're all we need. And may that be true in our lives as we sing. God, thank you for Psalm 63 and all the lessons we can learn here. Seal these truths in our hearts, Lord, for our good and for your glory, we pray.